0: manos manchadas. Cuántos hermanos tendrás que matar, la tierra que llora se va a desangrar, que llegue la vida como un vendaval, que brote la vida, que brille con fuerza, que irradie su luz en toda su esencia.
1: You're listening to KKUP Cupertino. That was Oro Negro by Anna Teju. Um, all right, so you're listening to Poetry Radio. Tonight's interview is with Rob Ruck. Rob Ruck is a professor of history at the University of Pittsburgh. His documentaries include The Republic of Baseball, Dominican Giants, and Of The American Game. He has written for the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, Salon, and other publications, and is the author of Tropica Football, The Remarkable and Bittersweet Rise of Samoans in the NFL. And that's out of the new press. It's hot off the press, actually. Uh, He lives in Pittsburgh. And uh, Rob Ruck, I am so lucky to call him a mentor and a friend and um, someone who guided me through my time in Pittsburgh uh, when I was working with him in the in the uh, history department, Department of History. And uh, so this book, Tropic of Football, is what we're talking about, and here's the interview. So I'll be back around midway through. I'm here in the studio. If you want to give me a call, you can give us a call here at 408-260-2999 or 831-480-1999. So here we go, the interview with Rob Rugg. I At first I was thinking, well, I'm a football fan, so... I think this will be all right. Like I grew up watching the Oakland Raiders, like, you know, silver and black is in my blood. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm good with Pittsburgh, you know, my dad lets me be, uh say that that Pitt is my uh that the Steelers are my second favorite, favorite team. He doesn't get too <laughs> hard on me about that. Um so I expected to get into this and to really like sort of be taken into the world of football, but it's not just a sports story. It's a it's a story about um I mean, what I'm seeing is sort of the how football came to the Samoan islands, right?
2: Not only, but what it means for them, and how it um, is really, in many ways, product of uh, Samoa, the way of Samoa. Uh, it's a story about culture and history, and how something like football has become both. Uh, something that celebrates the Samoan people and becomes a vehicle for them to tell their story to the world, uh, but also the costs and the downside that um, sport and anything we be- become so engaged with and so intensely attracted to can often cause. Right. And I think that's the larger story of sport.
1: Right. And you you sort of went into that. That was the same sort of um, journey that you were going into with your book, Raceball.
2: Yeah. Um, I mean, when I finished Raceball and that came out 2011, um, I knew I needed to get out of my comfort zone and stop looking at things I have looked at for a long time so that I could see things with a fresh perspective. Mm Mm-hmm. And yet, of course, you know, the ways in which we interpret the world stick with us. Mm-hmm. And uh, we see certain patterns. Um, and hopefully we're not just projecting what we studied in the past onto a new uh, canvas.
1: Mm. Huh. So so what brought you to Tropic of Football, anyway? I mean, what, why... Why going into the American Samoa? Why why going into this? Why did you want to go into the story of the islands?
2: Well, I mean, there's both you know the sort of the basic issues of what's going on in my life, but also the larger intellectual questions. Um, you know, I've always uh, enjoyed having a project to work on, and when I finished Race Ball, uh, I was adrift. I had no project and that's sort of like for me not being able to go out and run every day something doesn't feel right
3: mm.
2: and i've always been interested in uh, these small cultures that produce disproportionate numbers of talented athletes mm. whether it's dominicans in baseball or brazilians in soccer or kenyans in running and i had been watching troy Polamalu in pittsburgh And he struck me as, uh, in many ways, you know, the quintessential model of excellence in sport, athletically, intellectually, and socially. And I knew that there were a lot of Polynesians in the game, and I figured out, okay, let me go to American Samoa, uh, which I probably have not found on a map at the time,
3: Mm
2: -hmm. and if I can immerse myself in that story and begin to understand it. Uh, Now, I had no idea how far away it was, how difficult a process, how unlike anything else I'd ever studied it (laughs) was, Um, but that was part of the fun and excitement of the project. Now I think that the larger question um, is how I look at sport. Mm and. I've come to see sport at its best, what I like to call the republic of play.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: It's a transparent arena that's fair, in which the rules apply to everybody, mm-hmm. uh, in which you measure your own worth and validate yourself by the strength of your opponent,
3: mm-hmm.
2: and that the nature of sport celebrates the body, the mind, and being on a team. Mm-hmm. And I think that that republic of play is very much a participant, where those who are taking part in and building that sporting life have an equal say in what's going on. Mm -hmm. And yet, just like the early American Democratic Republic, which countenanced slavery along with freedom, Mm -hmm. the, the republic of play can be a pretty nasty place where youth around the world are reduced to commodities on a global supply chain where the athletes we applaud are traumatized physically and neurologically and sport can be used to rev up hate as well as uh, an understanding of people and this was a chance for me to go to a place i had never been about which I knew really nothing and try to see if I could make sense of the role of sport, how it had changed, and both its upside and downside. And um, that's what I tried to do in this book.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's, um, it's, not an, it's not only an exploration of football. It's an exploration of the historical means through which football has come to American Samoa. And also, what you were speaking about about um, how sports are sort of like there's this field and it's set up for, you know, these athletes to come in in equal in in equality in some ways to sort of, you know, battle in some senses each other, and I was reminded of the poet Claudia Rankine's book Citizen. She has this section where she's um, um, is it Venus Williams one of the no it was Serena Williams um who was having you know all of these sort of really racist things happen to her on the tennis court where calls that wouldn't normally be called were being called mm-hmm. on her people saying that her grunting was you know animalistic and all of these things and Claudia Rankine is addressing this very like unequal representation of the black body on the tennis court and how even in ev- even in that um arena where equality is supposed to be and rules are supposed to be set, even then the um the othered body is always sort of under intense scrutiny somewhat more than other groups of people and that that's sort of what I was thinking about going into Tropic of Football. Like why are so many Polynesian men in football and how did they get there? And when you started asking those questions, I was asking the same questions.
2: Well, I think you're right, and I think that um, we have a tendency to essentialize other people and reduce them to a few attributes. And, you know, given the resurgence of white ethno-nationalism, we can see that spilling over into sport more blatantly. Um, You know, there's no question that the the toxic sludge that Trump has um, encouraged uh, is at a A high we haven't seen in decades. Mm. Um, Now, I think, you know, many people look at Polynesians, including Polynesians themselves, and they think that there's some um, natural genetic superiority or some aspect of their inherent warrior culture Mm. that makes them better. Um, You know, I think there's certainly uh, a role that warrior culture has played that has affected Fa'a Samoa and how Samoans approach a game which is uh, very stoic about pain, Mm -hmm. um, accustomed to growing up in a very physical environment, uh, of working hard, uh, but also, you know, a good deal of corporal punishment in the family. Mm -hmm. Um, And those aspects and the discipline of Fa'a Samoa, which is incredibly intense, and reinforced by the religiosity of the culture, and the fact that uh, Samoans are perhaps the most overrepresented on a per capita basis group in the American military,
3: mm-hmm. you know,
2: all makes football with its hierarchical, disciplined, physical approach a natural. Right. Right. And I think that that cultural factors. Um, far outweigh, you know, the notion that uh, Polynesians are genetically superior for sport. I mean, you know, in the United States, I think that uh, there's a tendency to look at uh, Polynesian athletes as inherently, somehow genetically, naturally superior for sport, as well as an emphasis which I think many Polynesians uh, embrace, which is that they are warriors, that they've been bred as warriors. I think the latter does have a great influence on the Samoan approach to football. Mm -hmm. Um, These kids grow up, particularly in uh, the territory, uh, doing chores, doing a lot of walking, um, going at it uh with passion Mm -hmm. um, and are very stoical about pain Mm -hmm. they don't cop to pain and that physicality transfers to football so does the discipline of growing up in a samoan village where you not only answer to your parents Mm -hmm. but every auntie uncle preacher teacher and elder Mm -hmm. if you step out of line Um, then add on to that the religiosity of Samoan culture, Mm
3: -hmm. as
2: well as the tremendous over-representation of Samoans in the military. And you have a group of people whose uh, cultural socialization makes them as disciplined and physical as you can imagine, all of which football coaches love. Mm -hmm. Mm
3: -hmm. Now,
2: when it comes to the question of uh, inherent genetic superiority couple of things uh, a century ago in the united states there was the notion that african-american athletes were inherently inferior that black boxers had weak abdominal muscles so if they were hit in the stomach they'd fold
3: mm-hmm. that
2: black runners lacked endurance mm-hmm. that black athletes could not play any decision any position where decision making was involved because they wilted under pressure <laughs> now flip forward A century, Mm -hmm. and most people, black and white, think that African Americans are inherently superior. And I think the popular wisdom was wrong then and wrong now. Mm. If you look at Samoans, yes, they tend to be big people, but that change in body type is a direct result of the American diet infiltrating the islands during and after World War II.
1: Yes. I and read it's led, that. <laughs> the,
2: the biggest problem of uh, the Samoan people and Tongans and a lot of other Pacific Islanders is that they are the most obese and diabetic group on the planet. Um, but I think it's their approach to sport, their lack of uh, Viable alternatives hmm. that money and education and social capital provide a lot of people, uh, particularly when they come to the u s that uh, getting an education uh, is prized for Samoans in the territory, and that education means often using a scholarship to get off island to get that education right and then returning so I think there's a whole lot of cultural reasons which explain their emergence.
1: Yeah, I mean, those were the fascinating things in the book that I just, I, I kept reading out loud to my husband. I just said, oh my gosh, I, I never even considered this, which is this concept that, you know, the dietary changes came after World War II and all of the um, the sort of untouched territory that the islands were for so long, and then just all of a sudden everything boomed for them and changed and altered all of the ways of living um i thought it was really interesting how you talked about um sort of the the military's first impression of of samoan workers how you know well the samoan people were were fine as long as they had enough food and enough rest they didn't really need to work any harder than that and and it was this like oh they're not willing to work harder it's like no culturally they just don't need to <laughs> <laughs>
2: I love the fact that so many of the people like Robert Louis Stevenson uh or an American journalist who got there in the 1960s mm-hmm. uh, you know called this tropical communism <laughs> communism in its most perfect form and it really was a society and a culture that was not geared towards material accumulation
3: right
2: you uh took what you needed from the hillside plantation Uh, and the sea, and you distributed the bounty of that among the village. Um, You worked collectively. Nobody owned land. It was owned collectively by the extended family. And when you grow up in a culture where that family has been in this extended family's possession for several thousand years, you think differently
3: Mm -hmm.
2: about work and bank accounts and things like that. Now, that changes abruptly. Was mm-hmm. World War Two, but not completely. Yeah. and that's when Samoans uh, start to put on weight mm-hmm. when the diet really uh, takes a turn for the worse.
1: Well, because uh, during during the war during wartime they were you know busy fortifying things and building things and and being employed by the United States Army, and so uh, it seems as though they weren't uh, planting in the fields and they weren't allowed to fish in right. the surrounding area.
2: And it started importing food, which unfortunately they still do and when you think about it um, the diet and the food they import is far inferior to what they had once grown and fished
1: right right i mean it's 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 really um it's really telling how how parallel this story runs with other stories of immigration in the United States and other stories of sort of imperialism I just think about my own my own people being uh, Chicana Mexican-American and how um, You know How our diets uh, we're also a di- di- uh, an Obese people and we are suffering from diabetes uh, Rampantly and and I just look at my culture oftentimes and I think when did this happen because It doesn't seem like doesn't seem like this is right, or it doesn't seem like this is what we are, you know? And so there's these questions that I think your book really helps me work through, thinking about my own research into my own culture, and trying to find ways to, to define and understand what's happening to us.
2: Well, you know, and I think you're right that the parallels uh, with Mexican immigrants to the United States, with the indigenous peoples of the United States... Um, with many people whose culture is not necessarily demolished, but eroded by Americanization Mm. and by a particular American model. And for Samoans, that's far more pernicious than any sort of military or political interference. Uh, The U.S. gets this piece of the South Pacific uh, around 1900 Mm -hmm. and promptly forgot about it. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, it's it's the classic comparison with Mexicans, where Mexicans lament they're so far from God and close to the United States. <laughs> Samoans are so close to God and far from the United States <laughs> and benefited, I think, enormously from that neglect. Right. And then it changed quickly. Right. And because it's such a small population in a small territory, um... Even though there's you know the migration to the United States, where far more people of Samoans descent live than in the territory right. um the cultural changes and then the changes in health and diet and the body happen so quickly
1: right yeah, yeah, it seems to it seems to have happened very quickly. I mean when I started off your book, I'm reading about you know uh Stevenson coming across in a little boat and uh And then we pop forward, and we're suddenly in the 1960s. Um, So I only got midway through the book, so I I only made it to uh, Fa, California. Can you tell me a little bit about what happens later on? Since I'm such a bad student. (laughs) (laughs) Uh,
2: But you were a wonderful teaching assistant. Um, (laughs)
1: you.
2: You know, the much of the story of the book takes place not in American Samoa. Uh, which is a couple of little islands. Uh, the major Tutuila is only 19 miles long by four or five miles wide, and it's a volcanic uplift that shoots out of the sea and slathered in green. Much of the story occurs in Hawaii and California. The first Samoan migration to the States was in the early 1900s when the Mormons were building a temple in La Ie, on the north shore of Oahu, in Hawaii, north of Honolulu. Mm-hmm. And the temple is critical to converts to the Mormon church, mm-hmm. because it's the only place where certain sacraments can be done
3: mm-hmm.
2: uh, to enshrine your uh, self for immortality in the church. And they brought a number of Samoan converts there as laborers. Mm-hmm. They stayed on, and... They're there to this day, um, and they've made this this one high school, Kahuku, where -hmm. the kids from Laie and Kahuku, where there's a sugar plantation, go. This incredible high school football powerhouse. A later migration occurs after World War II, when the U.S. Navy shuts its base in American Samoa down in 1951, which devastates the economy but it gives free passage to all people who worked for the military or were in the military and their families to Hawaii and California. And that's going to lead to a bigger population of Samoans in Hawaii Mm -hmm. and populations in California around military bases uh, like Camp Pendleton in Oceanside, um, Naval Yards in Long Beach, uh, Fort Lewis, Washington. And you have these... Incredibly small communities that start punching above their weight in football
3: mm-hmm. in
2: Hawaii and in California. And I, I think this story—I'm not so much focused on the guys who are in the NFL or even Division One football. I'm interested in the high school communities that produce these athletes and what sport means to them along the way and I find Oceanside, California uh, an incredibly rich story in that regard where you have um, well Oceanside, California the most famous football player to come out of there and there are many famous athletes is Mm -hmm. Junior Seau Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. who is whose family is part of that migration Mm. and Seau comes up and is just an incredibly uh, talented and even more hard-working athlete who then goes to USC and then plays 18 or 20 years in the NFL Right. um, and is a perennial all-star, all-pro, and then a couple of years after retiring shoots himself in the chest Right. So that they can do an autopsy on his brain because Seow was haunted by the demons of chronic traumatic encephalopathy, mm. uh, the result of repeated subconcussive and concussive blows. Mm. Uh, now, this guy was the warrior.
3: Right.
2: He played with all kinds of injuries. He was probably shot up on a weekly basis to kill pain. Right. Somehow never diagnosed with a concussion, which is ridiculous on the surface, right. and yet was sort of the epitome of a football player and becomes the first Samoan in the Hall of Fame. Right. And it's not just Junior Seau, it's the Pow Pow brothers and mm-hmm. uh, Jesse Sapalu and others. Um, now, Sapalu takes us to Hawaii, where you see these kids starting to emerge, particularly in the 60s, uh, there had been a, only a few guys making it to the NFL, all from Hawaii that were Samoans before then. Mm-hmm. And then in the 60s, you see a dozen and a couple of dozen in the following decades before the current wave. And if you look at Hawaii, you see particular high schools, Kahuku,
3: mm-hmm.
2: Punahou, where Barack Obama went. Mm-hmm. The St. Louis School where um, Marcus Mariota, the first Samo- Samoan Heisman Trophy winner, and Tuatango Tango Vailoa, the freshman who was inserted uh, after halftime in the Alabama-Georgia um, championship game who won the game for them <laughs> on the last play. Uh, Farrington High School where Jesse Sapalu and Bob Pisa and the Nonga brothers went. And you, you bet, I, th- I better understand the culture at that level. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I describe as a microculture of sporting excellence
3: mm-hmm.
2: where there's the intersection of great coaching, teams that have great rivalries, sometimes great infrastructure, but not always. But most of all, they have a community of people who value sport, who support sport, and the kids are playing this game, not just because it gives them a chance to make some money someday, but because of what they feel it means to the community and the feedback they get.
3: Right. Right.
2: And, I mean, I think that a lot of these kids, it's only recently that the NFL and money has become, I think, such a a big lure. Mm -hmm. You know, I think they're playing for their community, for their people. They talk about how, you know, they're not just playing for themselves that their name represents an extended family and when they play at a higher level they feel like they're representing Samoans all over the world.
1: Yeah I think I think that's a similar sentiment that I've been getting from my students here at uh, California State University Monterey Bay where most of our we're a Hispanic serving institute and so most of my students are beautifully um, Latinos, Latinas, Latinx and you know they're there, we're talking about, well, what's the point of getting these educations? What's the point of striving for better when, when most of us will just return to our communities of poverty and have maybe slightly more opportunity than others to succeed? And a lot of us are talking about that concept of legacy, how I think every, every step that we take forward is an opportunity for someone else to carve that way a little further than what, what we've been able to do.
2: And I think that sense of giving back, of a responsibility to give back, is pretty widespread among Samoans. Mm. So you have, for example, Troy Palomalu, who, along with his wife Theodora, uh, who is not Samoan, um, created a foundation and have done, I think, four football camps, which then became volleyball camps and then became, became projects. Uh, to build computer centers and brought in people who do public health to work on public health and brought in Penny Samaya, who's an associate AD at Pitt who played football there, who is a Samoan, to do life skills training. Mm. And, you know, I think that uh, these athletes, and not only Troy, um, but Jesse Sapalu, um, Junior Seau before his death, mm-hmm. uh, Domata Peko and others, they feel committed to giving back.
3: Mm-hmm. And I
2: think, you know, it's always easier to do that in a smaller setting.
3: Mm-hmm. You know,
2: I mean, to try to give back to Nigeria, to give back to Brazil, to give back to Mexico when you're dealing with hundreds of millions of people,
3: it's mm-hmm. hard. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But when you're
2: dealing with a targeted population where people know each other
3: mm-hmm. and are all
2: connected like some banyan tree,
3: mm-hmm. it is a lot
2: easier. And you know, hopefully, your students have a, a geographic familial connection that allows them to go back to the community and make a difference in whichever way they can.
1: Yeah, I mean, but I, you are. <laughs> Thanks. I think I think we're I think we are working towards that. I think. I think for a long time, um, you know, my community, Chicano community, and we just sort of, gosh, I don't even know how to put it. I think Angela Davis, was it Angela Davis or maybe it was uh, someone, Anzaldúa said that one of the problems with um, finding ways to imagine the future in a radical way is that we often always feel like we're reinventing the revolution because we don't have a historical concept of how to make change because so many of us are sort of like not given the opportunity to learn how to make change. Or when we do learn, we leave our communities and we don't return to them because we move into different communities all this assimilation process. And so there's all of this sort of like lacking of historical and local context about how to actually impact and alter our Chicano communities and I think that's changing I mean it it seems to be changing I think we're starting to get cultural context and historical context for our struggle
2: well you know if if people don't try that then nothing happens yeah and you know I guess one generation can pass on a lot of lessons and advice and wisdom but the conditions that af- activists encounter when people go back into their community are always changing Mm
3: -hmm.
2: and you know it's those people on the ground Mm -hmm. uh, who don't have like me you know because I'm older a certain preconception Mm
3: -hmm. that often
2: no longer applies
3: Mm -hmm.
2: and you know I think we're seeing um, I think probably Trump has triggered Mm. uh, among youth you know much more engagement we'll see how that plays out in November.
1: Yeah, we will um, we will see how it plays twirlly. out. Yeah. But I
2: think it's happening in communities.
1: Yeah. I think so. I think um you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of unrest right now in California. There's a lot of unrest in the in in the Latinx community because you know, I mean even in my classrooms I I have I've taken down the phone numbers of some of my students who say that their family members are in danger of deportation and detainment, and um, because some of the students have left home to come to school and they're not sure if they're going to go home and their family's going to be gone when they return and so there's a lot of real, real uncertainty that's happening in our community out here that's a little bit scary and um, and interesting, but that's off topic. <laughs> <laughs> it's on topic
2: well in some ways it is but in some ways it's very much on topic
1: yeah yeah well I mean I just I just want to say I really enjoy reading your work I I always have I enjoyed um, being a a teaching assistant but being in your class and listening to everything that you had to say and everything that you've been teaching over the years Um, so thank you
2: well I thank you look I you know I write these books uh, not for other academics but for the community Mm -hmm. and you know I do think I have a responsibility when people have given me so much of their time energy and history to not only try as truthfully as I can to depict it but to then go back into those communities and talk with people and you know if this is reaching any of that um, Pacific Island community out in California Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. I'm very happy to know that and I'm very happy to to make it there and talk with people about what I've learned.
1: Yeah, we do have a good listening population um, uh, we have a couple of Hawaiian music shows here on KKUP and we definitely have a good um, uh, connection to the community in the area so I'm sure that uh, this will be spread a little further than, than it would be al- elsewhere so I'm looking forward to airing it.
2: Well, thank you. I appreciate you doing
1: this. Yeah, of course. Um, but before we go, I do want to ask you, so, I mean, this is sort of, you know, for the football fans. So did you get to hang out with some cool NFL people? Like, how do you do this research? Well, (laughs) you know, (laughs) give us the inside scoop. (laughs) Okay. I mean,
2: before I went the first time, I went to the only Samoan I knew, Samoan American, Penny Samaya. And he connected me with his uncle who had coached a team down there and his uncle sort of gave me the seal of legitimacy as I emailed other people.
3: Mm.
2: And, I mean, truly, you know, there's only about 65,000 people on the island, so when you get there and you've met one person, they tell you who else to talk with. Yeah. I went back several times, Mm. and I didn't understand that this story would be Hawaii and California, so I went there. Mm. Uh, On one of my trips, I accompanied... Uh, Palomalu, as he did a football camp. Nice. And, you know, I went down on a plane load from Honolulu with about 80 men and women who included a bunch of guys who played or are playing or coached or are coaching in the NFL in college. Nice. And, you know, every sport has a certain sense of fraternity within it. I think that the fraternity of people who play football might be the most intense, (laughs) but among that fraternity, because they suffer so much.
1: Right, right. But among
2: that group, that group, Polynesians are at the center of it Mm. and they're the center of every locker room. So, you know, here I was hanging out and living at a hotel with these guys the week while they were there. And, you know, many of them are, twice my size and half my age, and, you know, I'm a brother. Uh I'm one of them. It's such a welcoming group. It's a welcoming culture. There's a reason why Robert Louis Stevenson called Polynesians God's best, at least God's sweetest works. You know, people, you know, you walk down, you're walking somewhere, and you pass a female from five years old to 80, and they smile at you. Uh Uh, Even the teenage boys are smiling and friendly now that doesn't mean they don't hit like crazy on the football field (laughs) right you don't want to mess with these people if you you upset them but it is it was an embracing culture uh for an old guy like me
1: (laughs) not so old how's pittsburgh these days
2: pittsburgh is doing well we are we've made the transition uh the post-industrial transition and i think it's uh Got a good
1: future. Yeah. All right. You're listening to KKUP Cupertino 91.5 FM here in the Bay Area and beyond the Bay at KKUP.org. You just listened to an interview with Rob Ruck, um, the author of Tropic of Football. Rob Ruck is a professor of history at University of Pittsburgh. His documentaries include The Republic of Baseball, Dominican Giants of the American Game. He has written for The New York Times, The Washington Post, The Wall Street Journal, Salon, and other publications, and is the author of Tropic of Football, which he was talking about the remarkable and bittersweet rise of Samoans. In the NFL, out of the New Press, and he lives in Pittsburgh. Um, just a quick disclaimer the views and opinions expressed on this program or on the station do not necessarily represent the views and opinions of the staff and management of KKUP. Um, So I mentioned that you're listening to KKUP Cupertino 91.5 FM, and this is a non-commercial radio staffed completely by volunteers and supported 100% by our listeners. We have provided an alternate source for music and information not readily available on other stations for over 40 years. By maintaining a separation from corporate backing, underwriting, or any other source of funding that might place demands on our programming, we're free to entertain and educate the listening community in a unique way. Every day we offer music ranging from comical to classical, reggae to barbershop, new age to oldies, and not to mention our amazing poetry radio show. If you find this station worth supporting, please become a member. You can do that online or you can give me a call here at the studio at 408-260-2999 or 831-480-1999. So I'm going to play some music and then we're going to get back to some more poetry after this. So here we go. Thank you.
0: Se apilaron numerosos en bloques de cementos altos y furiosos Taparon la luz de nombres poderosos Y nunca más se vio aquel sol que era luminoso Lo llamaron desarrollo, crecimiento del barrio Solo quedaron los cimientos Dejaron desechos, dejaron gente sin techo El único hecho es que no tenemos ningún derecho No más, no más, los monstruos en la ciudad Con costanera, la urbe hierve como una caldera Quema la ciudad de locura en histeria Y en nuestros autos grandes olvidamos nuestras piernas Olvidamos saludarnos y sentarnos Mientras la grúa con rabia iba podando El último árbol que miraba sollozando ¿En qué nos convertimos y hacia dónde caminamos? No más, no más, los monstruos en la ciudad
4: Este cuerpo no da para no, no da para no, no da para nada. Este cuerpo no da para nada, para nada, para nada, para para nada. El que sea que salga la changana, mayor en el aire, retrata la.
0: Poetas, trovadores y coplistas, cantautores, baritonos, contraltos y artistas. Que me disculpen los intelectuales, pensadores, filósofos, teóricos y creadores. Yo y solo sé que escribo, escribo luego existo, porque la palabra cobre, cobra vida y sentido. Me da ese respiro del oxígeno al oído como uh, un órgano vital. Lo, lo que siento yo lo digo, el arte es un arte para liberarse, despojarse de las expectativas llevarse, con el, con el, el pensamiento, en ideas en continuo movimiento. Mi nombre poco importa, mi cara va cambiando con el paso del tiempo. y Ella se va arrugando, no le temo a la vejez, yo le temo a la tontera, al vacío sin sentido que invade esta era. Me cuestiono qué decir, cómo abordar un tema, un compromiso con el mundo. Pues cantar es mi escuela, rimar es mi academia, a veces mi dilema. Y en ese sincronismo, vivir vale la pena. Vivir lo que se escribe y escribir lo que se vive, desvivir. Con el texto desvestirse por completo Desnudar el sentimiento con el sentir más honesto prendirse jamás como primer manifiesto Sentir lo que se dice y lo que se dice sentirlo Vivir cada escrito pues no todo está dicho resentir resignificarlo todo como mecanismo Primer manifiesto, liberar el presente.
4: de lo que se dice, la música me eligió y yo a ella, somos felices no importa el escenario que pise sea en un festival masivo, bajo tierra con lombrices, son mis raíces las que no pierdo ni olvido, hacer ruido mi objetivo, soy elegido y bendecido, perdón por haber mordido el fruto prohibido, y si hoy vivo es por esto que llevo conmigo amigo, amigo del sonido, fiel a los míos y a mis principios, el barrio mi inicio ra, y ando difícil, y uno que otro esfuerzo y sacrificio, como alejarme de este vicio yo soy la voz De los anónimos, de los que rímamos para subir el ánimo humano, más que colegas hermanos, dedica ya se lo de corazón para que todo lo demás, el tiempo se encargará hasta que llegue la oportunidad. Hazlo de corazón, buena, que todo lo demás El tiempo se encargaría, el tiempo se encargaría.
0: Vivir lo que se escribe y escribir lo que se vive Desvivirse con el texto, desvestirse por completo Desnudar el sentimiento con el sentir más honesto Rendirse jamás como primer manifiesto Sentir lo que se dice y lo que se dice sentirlo Vivir cada escrito, pues no todo está dicho Resentir, resignificarlo todo como mecanismo Primer manifiesto, liberar el pensamiento
1: You're listening to kkup cupertino 91.5 fm this was out of our minds uh, poetry radio the songs i played tonight uh the last one was Thraca by la dame blanche and then delta by anna Tejou. i've been playing anna Tejou and la-, la dame blanche back to back so and then um no parada is la dame blanche no mas anna Tijoux, and romantica by La Dame Blanche. Thanks for listening. Next week we'll have Lady Stardust in the house to take you into the Halloween mood. And next up is uh the Joe Sojo show. So the ethnic connection. Here we go. <laughs>